Section 28 of Shakespeare Identified. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edward Kirkby, Warwick, England. Shakespeare Identified in Edward de Vere by J. Thomas Looney. Early Manhood, Part 1. As Burley's papers are the chief original source of biographical matter relating to the Earl of Oxford's private life, and the writers upon whom we depend for most of our details are marked by Sicilian partialities, it is necessary to point out that though we accept many of the facts upon their authority, they share in no degree the responsibility for the interpretation of them. This is entirely our own. On coming of age in April 1571, Oxford took his seat in the House of Lords, and in the same year distinguished himself at a solemn joust which took place in the Queen's presence at Westminster. In December of the same year he married, with the Queen's consent, Anne, daughter of Lord Burley. The Queen, quote, attended the ceremony which was celebrated with great pomp, unquote. As we have already had occasion to point out the remarkable parallelism between the case of the Earl of Oxford and Bertram in All's Well, we must now add to it this fact of his marriage with a young woman with whom he had been brought up. In Bertram's case, however, they had lived together at his own home, whereas in Oxford's case they had lived together in the home of the lady. If we are to believe contemporary report on the matter, the resemblance between the two cases extends to even more interesting particulars. Helena was socially inferior to Bertram. In the early part of the play he shows no inclination towards this young woman, who is in love with him, and it is she who pursues the young man until she succeeds in winning him as her husband. Helena, quote, I am from humble, he from honoured name, no note upon my parents his all noble my master my dear lord he is and i his servant live and will his vassal die unquote. we may remark in passing that it is difficult to believe that these words could have been written by any one but an aristocrat in whom pride of birth was a pronounced feeling we may also compare the last lines of this passage with the concluding part of de vere's echo poem Quote, may i his favour match with love if he my love will try may i requite his birth with faith then faithful will i die Unquote. most people will agree that the similarity of these two passages is startling now not only did anne cecil belong to the newly emerging middle class so much held in contempt by the few remaining representatives of the ancient aristocracy but we have it reported by a contemporary, Lord St. John, that, quote, The Earl of Oxenford hath gotten himself a wife, or at least a wife hath caught him. This is the mistress Anne Cecil, whereunto the Queen hath given her consent. Unquote. One may conclude, therefore, that the Earl of Oxford was not supposed to have been very active himself in bringing about the marriage. Rightly or wrongly, others regarded Oxford's marriage with Burley's daughter in much the same light as is represented by the marriage of Bertram with Helena. All this reads very strangely in view of the age of the bride. 
for Anne was born on December 5th, 1556. Like Juliet, she was therefore but fourteen years of age at the time when the courting alluded to took place, and when all the wedding arrangements were made. The marriage itself seems merely to have been delayed until the moment when she could be spoken of as being fifteen. This combination of extreme youthfulness and the bearing and conduct of a matured woman, common to Juliet and Anne Cecil, we shall find in a later dramatic representation of Lady Oxford. The resemblance to Juliet, however, must be viewed in the light of the remarkable correspondence in literary particulars between the work of De Vere and Shakespeare's play of Romeo and Juliet. This play is recognized as one of the early productions of Shakespeare, and it is also interesting to notice that Mr. Frank Harris selects Romeo as a personal self-representation of Shakespeare in his early years. The resemblance between Lady Oxford and Helena, with which we are particularly concerned at this stage, is further supported by letters in the Hatfield manuscripts, in which her smallness of stature and sweetness of manner are indicated. She is spoken of on two occasions by different writers as the quote, sweet little Countess of Oxford, unquote, precisely as Helena in All's Well is spoken of as quote, little Helena and sweet Helena, unquote, the latter epithet being specially emphasized by repetition. What the actual inward relationships of Oxford and his wife may have been is one of the secrets over which the grave has closed for ever. We have impressions recorded, however, which are derived evidently from hostile Cecil sources. Oxford himself, on the other hand, preserves an almost complete silence, proof against all provocation. His enemies call it sulkiness. The one thing clear about it is that the union was unhappy and had a marked influence upon his career this being so the matter concerns our present inquiry the antagonism between oxford and philip sidney has already been referred to now we find that sidney had first of all been proposed as a husband for anne cecil and her father's conduct of the negotiations however it may strike an aristocrat appears to an ordinary englishman as sordid a piece of bargaining over the disposal of a daughter as could well be. Sidney, notwithstanding his family connections and personal prospects, which had evidently been quite enough to satisfy the demands of a prospective aristocrat father-in-law like Lord Devereux, was nevertheless too poor a man to satisfy the cupidity of Sir William Cecil as he then was. He must needs procure for his daughter, he says, a richer husband than Master Philip Sidney. The difficulty was overcome, however, and arrangements were made for the marriage of Anne Cecil to Sidney. Though both were hardly more than children at the time, for Sidney was Oxford's junior by four and a half years, whilst Anne was only twelve years old in 1569, when the marriage arrangement was made. At the time when the marriage between Anne and Sidney was arranged, the Earl of Oxford was socially, quote, out of Anne's star, unquote. Now Cecil's care for the social and material advancement of his own family is one of the outstanding features of this policy. From this point of view, the marriage of his daughter to one of the foremost of the ancient nobility and a man of vast possessions would be a great acquisition and the gratification of a high personal ambition. 
these social connections evidently meant much to him for he had tried to make out an aristocratic ancestry for himself and had failed whether or not elizabeth would sanction such an alliance might however be considered extremely doubtful and if she were to consent such consent would be almost as great a concession to cecil as was that of denmark's king and queen to the marriage of hamlet with the daughter of polonius what may have transpired quote, behind the scenes unquote, we shall probably never know but we find that early in fifteen seventy one cecil was raised to the peerage with the title of lord burley the marriage arrangement with sydney was cancelled the queen gave her consent to oxford's marriage with burley's daughter anne and in the latter part of the same year that marriage took place in the queen's presence being quote, celebrated with great pomp unquote. it is not improbable then that burley owed his own peerage to this proposed marriage a most curious circumstance suggestive of more sordid bargaining is what is recorded of burley and oxford's estates amongst the extensive estates of the de beers the two most directly associated with the family appear to have been those of earls cole and henningham in essex now we find that shortly after his marriage the earl of oxford made over the important ancestral domain of castle Heddingham to his father-in-law what influences may have been at work to get him to part with castle Heddingham to burley it is impossible to surmise but when we find that his father-in-law had been complaining of his poverty only a few years before that he had managed to get himself made master of the court of royal wards and that when he died he left three hundred landed estates it needs no stretch of imagination to suppose that he had been able to exercise over the affairs of other royal wards something of the same kind of undue influence which he had evidently been able to exert over his youthful son-in-law if therefore there is any character in shakespeare's works whom we may be able to identify with burley to have had him likened to jephthah as hamlet does polonius would have been something of a slander upon jephthah for the conduct of this old testament character towards his daughter seems quite respectable compared with the sordid dealings of the great lord burley and the tears which the latter seems ostentatiously to have shed at the death of her whom he called his quote, filia charisma unquote, ought to have sprung from the grief of shame and repentance rather than the grief of bereavement in the subsequent troubles burley made much of the faultlessness of oxford's bearing whilst an inmate of the former's house and if his accusations were found to be well grounded they would only render more contemptible the sacrifice he made of his quote, filia charisma unquote, for personal and family ambition he cannot have it both ways notwithstanding therefore the royal consent the pomp of the ceremony and the elaborate festivities it is evident that the marriage had not taken place under the happiest of auspices for those most immediately concerned to all these initial drawbacks must be added the fact that the young couple seemed to have remained under the eye and direction of the lady's father who we shall presently show was about as incompatible with her husband in disposition interests and circumstances as one man could possibly be with another 
Oxford's mother-in-law was also an important factor to be reckoned with. The stern and vigilant Lady Burley apparently considered it part of her duty to keep a strict watch upon her young son-in-law, and was not afraid of rebuking the great Queen Elizabeth herself, then forty years of age, for attempting to flirt with the young man. The Queen's angry retort that, quote, his lordship, open bracket, Burley, close bracket, winketh at these love affairs, unquote, is illuminating in more points than one, and helps us to envisage the whole moral situation. Finally, whatever the actual facts behind Burley's general accusations against Oxford, whilst he was an inmate of the Cecil home, it is quite evident that Oxford's relationships with the family had not been harmonious, and only the best of luck and the utmost circumspection all round could have averted disaster. As the personality of Elizabeth's great minister looms large in the life of the poet during the years immediately following the marriage, and probably exercised an influence over the whole of his career, it is necessary that the character of their relationship should be duly weighed. It is not part of our business to estimate Burley's value as a statesman or politician, nor even to take his moral measure as a whole. It is his dealings with one man that concerns us, and how these dealings would be likely to impress the man in question. In brief, we are concerned principally with Burley's dealings with Oxford, from Oxford's point of view. On the one hand, we have a man who for many years had maintained a supreme position in the political world at a time when such eminence could only be secured and retained by the most shifty opportunism. On the other hand, we have a very young man, hardly more than a boy, with the sensitive and idealist temperament of the poet, keenly alive to the literary and intellectual movements of his time, and with a fervent attachment to the departing feudal order, the social and moral principles of which were at direct variance with the political opportunism of the age in which he lived. To the young man, politics, in their contemporary sense, would be as great an abomination as they would be a ruling interest in the mind of the elder man. It is difficult, therefore, to conceive of two men more thoroughly antipathetical or less likely to understand each other. If, then, we recollect that the younger one had been subjected to the elder one's dominance from childhood, it speaks well for the former strength of character and the decided bent of his genius, that his literary and poetic inclinations were not crushed by the weight of the influences working against him. As some of the admirers of Burley have tried to make out that his influence was favourable to the literary movement of the times, we can perhaps best judge him in this respect by indicating his relationship to the second genius of that age, the poet Spencer. One or two expressions from Church's life of the poet will suffice. Quote, Burley's dislike to Spencer, unquote, page 47. Quote, Burley hated him and his verses, unquote, page 87. Quote, under what was popularly thought the crabbed and parsimonious administration of Burley, dot, 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 it seemed as if the poetry of the time was passing away into chill discouragement, unquote, page 107. No treatment of the question of Burley's dealings with other men would be adequate which omitted to mention the system of espionage which he practised. 
even his eulogists are compelled to admit the far-reaching and intricate ramifications of the system he set up the application of it to even those servants of the state who had every reason to believe themselves most trusted and the low and scrupulous character of the agents he employed to watch men of high station and approved honour the article on Bailey in the Dictionary of National Biography, which is very partial towards its subject and nevertheless admits all this, and it appears occasionally in the quote, Life of Spencer, unquote, of which we have made frequent use. Of course, his admirers find a justification for this in the dangers to which his life was exposed. Other men in exalted positions have, however, been exposed to similar dangers, and some of them have had to protect themselves with similar means. Bert have been able to do it without outraging the sense of decency to the same extent as was done by Burley. It is quite evident, moreover, from G. Ravenscroft Dennis's work on quote, the House of Cecil unquote, that when his eldest son Thomas, afterwards Earl of Exeter, was in Paris, Burley had him watched and secretly reported on, quite in the manner of Polonius's employment of the spy Rinaldo. In this case, no such excuse as that proffered would apply. It seems more like the insensibility of a vulgar nature to the requirements of ordinary decency. The man who, having risen to eminence through his patron, the Duke of Somerset, saved himself when his patron fell by drawing up the articles of impeachment against his benefactor, was perhaps unable to believe that others could act from higher motives than his own, and he was prepared to trust nobody certainly no one could feel himself free from the attentions of burley's spies and least of all the son-in-law who knew that beneath any external show of amicability there lay between them a natural and rooted antipathy in these spying methods of burley's we may possibly find an explanation of a mysterious incident recorded as happening prior to oxford's marriage especially if we suppose oxford to be quote, Shakespeare. Unquote. Oxford had inflicted a wound on an undercook in Burley's employ, and this wound unfortunately proved fatal. None of the circumstances are told, possibly because they are unknown, but like everything else, the event must needs be set down to Oxford's discredit. Now, remembering Burley's spying methods and the peculiar circumstances under which Polonius received his death wound at the hands of Hamlet, we may possibly find in the drama a suggestion of something that had actually happened in the experience of its author, especially in view of Hamlet's exclamation, quote, Thou wretched rash, intruding fool, farewell, I took thee for thy better, unquote if then in shakespeare there is any character whom we might identify with burley we should expect to find a spying craftiness amongst his characteristics this of course is the case with polonius in the thinly veiled conflict between the two men it is evident that burley had not all his own way accustomed as he had been to the thought of others yielding to his domination a domination possibly less real than he imagined, as he appears to have been more of an instrument in the hands of his capable mistress, and less as a ruling power, than he supposed, 
treated as he undoubtedly had been with extreme deference by one of the most autocratic of a despotic dynasty he nevertheless found himself contradicted remonstrated with and embarrassed by a son-in-law who was little more than a boy and who undoubtedly regarded the great minister as belonging to an inferior order it is difficult to appreciate the point of view of writers who speak of oxford's quote, ingratitude unquote, to burley and of his having added to his own eminence by marriage the fact is they merely repeated burley's own account as it appears in the documents he has left as master of the court of royal wards burley had had charge of oxford and had used his position both to elevate the social prestige of his own family and to add to his own estates so far as de vere is concerned it is difficult to see that he owed any substantial advantage to his connection with burley whilst the latter was undoubtedly the source of a very great deal that acted as a drag upon the life of his son-in-law interfering with the natural expansion of his powers intensifying their chagrins of domestic trouble and fastening a stigma on his reputation we have already referred to burley's repeated thwarting of oxford's desire for a more useful career and a more extended experience of life and whatever reason we may have offered it is quite clear that behind it all there was no real friendliness towards the younger man the pretence of a good motive behind the repeated refusal that he hoped the queen might find something better for him is so evidently a subterfuge as to make the real hostility all the more evident nor is it the only instance in which we find burley trying to give a gloss of friendliness to his attempts to injure his son-in-law some years later when oxford was in trouble with the authorities we find burley appealing to raleigh and hatton to use their influence with queen elizabeth on oxford's behalf this reads at first like a friendly act when however we remember that raleigh was possibly the one man about court whom his royal mistress most delighted in teasing whose real influence with the queen was practically negligible and between whom and oxford there was a long-standing antagonism if to all this we add the fact that burley in making the appeal to hatton uses the occasion to gather together all the charges he can formulate against the very man for whom he is supposed to be interceding and pours them into unfriendly ears for hatton also was of the hostile party and wrote a letter of complaint to the queen elizabeth speaking of himself as quote, sheep unquote, and oxford as the quote, boar unquote. we can only wonder at the clumsiness of a manoeuvre hardly entitled to rank even as low cunning as we have had occasion thus to mention the unfriendly relationship of oxford to raleigh we may see a reflection of it in shakespeare's allusion to the quote, the sanctimonious pirate that went to sea with the ten commandments but scraped one out of the table thou shalt not steal unquote. open bracket quote, measure for measure close quote, close bracket for it is not easy to reconcile the religious pietism of raleigh's poetry with certain of his well-known seafaring episodes the moral standards of the time are sometimes urged in extenuation of raleigh's doings but burleigh himself 
to his credit, disapproved of the great sailor's buccaneering, although, on the other hand, he saw that the Queen secured some share of the spoil. End of section 28 Recording by Edward Kirkby, Warwick, England